Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. I'm Sam McElwain and this pod was recorded the other evening when Gareth and myself held our first ever live Shrapnel event and it was fantastic. Firstly, thanks to Professor John Barry for inviting us along to Queen's University and also to our guests that turned up in the evening. We sold out our tickets weeks ago and we had to put a few on extra uh, afterwards. Also, thanks to you, our listeners, because you know, Shrapnel doesn't work and doesn't exist without you. Uh, a million thanks to our guest on the evening, Paul Burgess, author, academic and punk legend, and you can hear plenty of them in this show. Thanks again to Queen's University Belfast for hosting the event. And you guys can carry on supporting Shrapnel by subscribing, liking, listening, rating and reviewing. Please share with your friends, push as far and wide on the social media channels. We will also be live with a fantastic lineup at Imagine Belfast on the 23rd of March at 7.30. And that's in the Crescent Arts Centre. We'd love to see you there. Talk to you soon, folks, and enjoy the show. Hi, folks. Thanks for coming. Um, Shrapnel is live for the first time as a, a two-piece with a guest. Uh, usually I get to do this stuff on my own on foreign soil. I'm well aware that I'm on my home soil and... Um, I have to be accurate because everybody's here knows me, so we'll work with that. No, you're not. This is um. If this was Gareth. This wouldn't happen. I'm just saying. Yeah, sectarianism. It is. I mean, it's it's. I'm subjugated, <laughs> and there's a jackboot on the back of my neck, and everything else. Yeah. Um, tonight we have Paul Burgess, and it feels like I'm introducing myself in in a way. Um, we've walked, yeah, we've walked the same streets, we've hung about in the same corners, uh, maybe a decade apart, but nothing much changed in that time. And reading through the book, it became quite glaring that we hadn't progressed in, in my time, following on from Paul, and I don't think we've progressed too much from then on. So we're going to talk about Paul and his life, and I like these books because we can talk about Paul, it's his book. Um, not something that he's writing about, but it's something that he's lived. So, without further ado, hi Paul, how are you? Hi Sam, thanks, thanks for the introduction and the invitation. Hey Paul, it's all been all of a week since I've talked to you. All of all of fifteen minutes, in fact. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose I'll I'll kick off because I'm the shy one, apparently. Um, you write in the book early on about um education. And how higher education wasn't for the likes of you. And I, I read that as us. And, and it, it was that way. So we're sitting in Queens tonight. I have the pleasure of being here most days. Um, but it, And I'm, I'm also hosting a podcast. And it's something that boys like us from the Shangle weren't supposed to have. Was a voice. And an educated voice. And to be heard. Um, but you took that to another level with, with the band. And, and you have used the podcast. But you've used the lyrics. Uh, yeah, I mean, education uh, or the lack of oppor- educational opportunity um, was something that I had to um, deal with from an early stage uh, because back in the day, as probably people remember here, uh, if you didn't pass your 11 plus, that was about it. Uh, you were kind of consigned to uh, a life in uh, traditional industries that were already in decline. And uh, subsequently, I did feel my 11 plus 
uh, much to the chagrin of my and surprise of my parents and my older brother who was deputy head boy and particularly uh, you know was doing his A levels and what went wrong with me uh, you know um, I have some theories on what went wrong but uh, basically anyway they put me into this thing called CSE class I don't know if people remember CSEs and uh, that was you uh, basically as I say uh, out went German and French and even history and in came woodwork and metalwork and technical drawing and whether you liked it or not or whether you're any good at it or not and so uh, yeah I I then had to um, to traverse that find a way around it uh, in this case that meant actually I could come back and do my A-levels but I'd have to take an extra year uh, which uh, when you're a young man uh, is remarkably um you know, a very difficult thing to do. It's humiliating in some respects. And uh, so I, I tried it for about uh, six months, couldn't hack it. All my mates were getting jobs. I had no money uh, and I was feeling like a failure academically. So I took a job in shorts. Uh, but fortunately, I had the good sense to uh, to finish the qualifications, the A-levels uh, at night school. And that changed everything for me further down the line. But of course, as far as as far as uh, having another outlet or having a an opportunity to channel a lot of that frustration and anger, uh, fortunately, along came punk rock. So, and I think a couple of years ago, you know, Kenneth Branagh's film came out, obviously Belfast, and it was his sort of interpretation of his experiences of nineteen sixty nine. Can you talk a wee bit about what nineteen sixty nine was like for you? I mean, there's a song "Days of Heaven," yeah. which you allude to that sort of you know um, upheaval in your community. Can you talk a wee bit about that and what effect it had on you as a young boy? Yeah, well, I would have been I would have been ten in nineteen sixty nine, and um, you know my memories of of you know up to that point uh, were pretty idyllic. I mean, we lived in in a very working class area, uh, Shankler Road, and uh, outside toilet, no hot water, uh, all the cliches. You know, had to do your ablutions in a tin bath in front of the front of the fire uh and um you know so it was all all these all the cliches um uh, you know and and uh but despite that uh you know i have fairly happy memories of of running around uh in and around the shankle area at that time uh and just having a full kind of raucous knockabout boyhood uh and then things started to change Obviously, um, some of the most obvious things were the clouds of CS gas that um, floated up from the street rats that were happening down at the bottom of where I live, Snugville Street, uh, on the Shankill. And um, then, of course, uh, things escalated in a very bad way. Uh, next thing, I'm asking my mother why these people are coming around collecting milk bottles uh, to make petrol bombs, uh, and um, people are saying, well, it's to defend the area because, uh, you know, the pogroms were on and people were being burned out of their homes on, on both sides, I think, of, of, of what became the peace line. Uh, so these things became very real, and um, one vivid memory I have is actually of the, the pub, the four-step in, uh, being blown up. Uh, one evening, and my brother and my father immediately, like most of the men in the street, immediately made a beeline because they were trying to pull people out from under the rubble. Um, and I went to follow them. And my mother, of course, grabbed me and pulled me back in. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, these are, these are, um, uh, 
well, the song itself, to some extent, sort of tries to capture that days of heaven, nights of hell, uh, so which was trying to suggest to some extent that um, there was this, I, I, you know, it was idle in a way that sort of was innocent and and part of a you know a childhood that was you know it was very enjoyable but then things changed and and you know then with darkness the stones and rubble fell i think is the, is the lyric and um but i tried also in that song to to suggest that there was um that there was a code of honor amongst working class communities and working class uh people on both sides um of the divide and um that family and jobs were the main concern uh, in many respects. And if you could take out the, the, the you know, the, the impossible and horrendous kind of political situation that people found themselves in, then really at root, that still would was what people, working class people were at heart, uh, you know, wanting to achieve security for their family. Um, and uh, you know, on an ordinary life, and that's one of the great tragedies of, about Northern Ireland in my in my case, because you know most of the sectarian crime was carried out on working class people by working class people. I mean, you also speak in the book about growing up in Shankill and the family experience that you have being a matriarchy, and I have that experience too, where it's not openly talked about, but the the females of the, of the the family run the family. So when I went to school and people started talking about the patriarchy and feminism, I, I wonder what they were talking about, to be honest, because it was always the case in our family structure that was the, my mom and the aunts yes. that ran the family structure. I mean, yeah. is, is that to do with the social class or the, or the loyalist social class, do you think? Or do you think it's working class across the board? Yeah, I do, actually. Uh, I don't think it's anything specific to, to you know, unionism or loyalism or anything like or my personal experience. I in, in my experience, I think that's a that's a common code that runs through um, working class households. Um, you know, uh, I'm generalizing, of course, uh, but in the main, my experience and, and, you know, there are people here tonight who um, who I grew up with and who I went to school with and had very similar experiences that I did uh, in my in my kind of childhood and, and growing up. And I think they'd all agree. I mean, I know their mothers and their mothers were all very strong women who ran the show, uh, you know, and um, and my in my own father's case, you know, um, I think it was a case of putting in the pay packet and being given back something for a pint and a bet. And that was where his responsibility ended, you know, um, uh, certainly as far as as domestic duties were concerned um so no i i don't i don't think that at all i've seen it i've seen it uh you know with nationalist friends and nationalist family of strong matriarchs i've seen it in the republic because i've lived in a republic for 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 many years now and um i ran a a, a degree course in university college cork uh that trained community workers and so that would have meant that we would have had a lot of people coming from working class communities to do that course uh and also we would have put uh, students into placement situations in communities and almost universally women were the main operators in, in all this. so so matriarchy knows no political boundaries yeah so we've talked about school and family but there was forces outside school and family and the gang culture was obviously well it was big in every sort of western city at that time but in northern ireland it was sort of influenced by the sectarian um conflagration what was your experience of that well, I mean, uh, you know, as as is in the book, if anybody's read it, it it starts off um, frighteningly to say almost half a century ago, fifty years ago, um, and it starts off in a in a small street gang uh, 
that we called the Debs, which was short for debonairs, and we thought we were, you know, we, we you know we we thought we brought a panache to casual violence in a way that other gangs didn't, uh, you know. And um, but that said, we were fourteen. Uh, you know, we weren't exactly, uh, we were still still a rites of passage thing. But I think importantly as well, it's important to say that uh, my belief is that that, that created a bubble for us um, because because our, our deviances were fairly, were fairly tame, uh, you know, in terms of our, our street gang culture kind of behavior. Uh, but what it did do was it protected us from what was going on around us because it meant that, you know, in our little collective and in our sense of ourselves and in our codes that we had in terms of dress and music, you know, you, you can only get into our gang if you like certain musicians uh, and if you wore certain clothes and if you had a certain attitude towards certain things uh, and if you liked underage drinking, obviously. Um, but uh, really everything that was going on around us, it, I, I, my belief is it protected us from the, from the, the sort of the grasp of the paramilitaries who were recruiting you know, quite heavily at the time, uh, you know, from people just like us. Uh, so that gang culture thing uh, was very important. It was a collective. And in my case, then it, it, it basically led on to the formation of what became the band because my main, my best mate and my main and the leader of the gang, so to speak, uh, was, I referred to him in, a, in, in the book as TC, like Top Cat, uh, but his name was Tom Coulter. And, um, uh, you know, he's a very good friend of mine. And, um, Basically, uh, we had created this kind of alternative situation where we, we, we felt some, you know, that, that, um, uh, you know, that we, we were, we were protecting something that was important to us and we were, we were careful not to color outside the lines, so to speak, in our, in our behavior because we didn't want to bring ourselves into conflict with, with the paramilitaries for, for sure. But that then, as I say, that was the catalyst for, for the band. And, uh, when we got a little bit older, I mean, it, it sounds silly to say, but when you're 14 or 15, it's, there's a, there's a big difference from being 14 and being 16. Uh, even though it doesn't seem that way, but but there is. And um, by the time we were getting to 16 and 17, um, you know, uh, our thoughts were changing to different things. Uh, we were growing up. We were thinking perhaps about jobs and about girls, uh, but we never stopped thinking about music. So when punk rock came along, we were absolutely primed to grab it with both hands. Yeah, and I was talking to somebody earlier on about some of the lyrics that you'd you'd written at this sort of early stage of the the band's sort of formation. Um, Flowers for all occasions. Were you eighteen when that was written? Flowers. Um, I would say, yeah, I was about nineteen. I'd say eighteen or nineteen. Yeah. I mean, the, the lyrics I'll read from a part here, and it says, "The child was not to know his father." who would die one winter's day. And you're talking about somebody has been taken away in sectarian violence. You're talking about the gang culture from the age of 14, and you knew that if you stayed within that small pack, that you could probably navigate the paramilitaries of that age. And then you're writing lyrics of that. And somebody's asking that, how how do you write about that at such a young age? But I know how you do that. It, it's because we grew up so quick. Yeah. We've, we became exposed to things that we shouldn't have been exposed to at a young age. So we're looking at how the formation of that gang and how you lived through those four or five years brought you to a stage where those kind of lyrics were floating to the top. Yeah, well, you know, what they said about being in a bubble and trying to be protective of ourselves and, and so on, of course, you can only, that's only uh, a fact of up to a point. I mean, we all would have known people 
you know, uh, who were, you know, regularly either getting arrested and going to Long Cash or getting shot or getting arrested for shooting somebody or, you know, um, I don't want to, you know, sensationalize that. And I don't want to sort of suggest that we had it any worse than anybody else. We didn't. But um, but it was it was all around all the time. It was pervasive. And um all you could do was try and, at some level, as I say, protect yourself from the awfulness of it. And maybe writing songs was one way to do that. And, and at a young age, you also experienced the loss, and not directly through sectarianism, but because of the sectarianism being present in in, in the community and, and in civic society. You lost a friend. Can you talk us through that? Well, it didn't didn't lose him directly. Um, you know, through a terrorist. Um, event as such, but uh, yeah, it's 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 lettered in the book. It was a, a friend of mine called Jim Mawinney, um, who I'd went to school with and who was in the Debs. Uh, and um, yes, he a, a few years later, we I suppose at this stage would have been eighteen or so. Um, he had gone into town with another guy uh, and uh, just just for a day out. Now, where we lived at the time, or where we all hung around, was a place called the Turn of the Road, uh, and. Um, uh, you know, like a lot of places in Belfast, it kind of intersected with, you know, Catholic area intersected with the Protestant area intersected with the Catholic area. So you could comfortably go out of one and into another, you know, on, on one bus route, uh, you know, on a regular basis. And basically in this, on this day, he and another guy had gone into town, were coming back. And now as this bus route, as it happens, went, if you missed your stop, the bus would take you uh, through the loyalist area where you were supposed to get off, but into a Republican area, in this case called Laganil, uh, which is, is, is in North Belfast. And, you know, at 18, during those days, that if you, if you were getting off the bus on a Saturday afternoon in Laganil, you would be spotted immediately, uh, as, as, you know, probably from being down the road, so to speak. So, uh, tragically, what happened was that um, they had the bus driver. They hadn't got up in time to get off the bus, and the bus kept going, and it was going up into Laganil. And Jim and the other guy had asked the bus driver to open the doors and let them off. Uh, he wouldn't. So, uh, one of the two of them had uh, turned on the the emergency switch to open these folding doors that that obviously were on the buses at the time, probably still are. And the other guy, he jumped off. Jim went to jump off. The guy closed the door, caught his foot and pulled him onto the bus, uh, uh, you know, and he was a double-decker bus, basically. So, I mean, that was the first time I'd, I'd ever encountered, um, you know, we, we went up to the house, uh, obviously, and to pay our respects to his mother. And, um, and it's the first time I've, I've ever, I'd ever seen a dead body and certainly one the same age as me. Um, and it was, a, you know, it was a real tragedy. Um, there was a little postscript to it and... If he was here, I'm sure he would disagree. I know Henry Clooney did, but um, uh, Jim lived across the road from Jake Burns in the same street. And we had known Stiff Little Fingers quite well at the time because we went to the same school. And in fairness, they were a couple of years older than us. And, um, uh, you know, they'd been quite helpful to us at times, you know, even though we, we absolutely didn't deserve it because we absolutely... Um, you know, um, chastised them endlessly about the fact that they were hippies and they were in a band called Highway Star and we used to go and see them playing covers of Leonard Skinner and we would not desist from reminding them of this at every opportunity. But despite all that, they were kind enough to take us on tour with them. Uh, anyway, the, the point that, that's relevant in this particular uh, case is that around that time, um, 
you know, I had heard that Jake had written a song called Wasted Life and he had did an, uh, which I'm sure many people will know. And he did an interview and said, well, it's sadly it's based on a, a friend of mine who, who I live quite close to, who, um, you know, uh, died in the troubles or was killed in a sectarian incident or something like that. And I remember when the penny dropped, uh, between me and Tom and we thought, he's talking about Jim. And I thought, and we thought that's unacceptable because, you know, Jim would have ribbed him just as much as anybody else, and he certainly wasn't his friend. Uh, and, uh, you know, but if, as I say, if he was here, I'm sure he wouldn't fess up to it. He'd say he was talking about somebody else. At the time, uh, it became clear to us that he was talking about Arn Mitt, and I would never really forgive him for that, you know. Nothing wrong with Leonard Skinner. <laughs> um, we've talked about family and gangs and, you know, the sort of early troubles and music. Can you talk about George Chambers? Yeah, sure. George was pivotal to me. He was, um, in, in many respects, he was um, uh, a kind of mentor at a very young age. Um, when I was, uh, he was my P7 teacher at Glenwood Primary School on the Shankill. And uh, George was a founder member of the Northern Ireland Labour Party. Uh, he was also a very talented musician. Uh, he played trumpet in the Apex Blues Band or the Apex Jazz Band. I can't remember which which that was called. And um, and he was a teacher. And he his father ran a small uh, news agent on the Shankill Road. You might know it, Sam. You might remember. And uh, so he was an all-round good guy and um, pillar of the community. And um, he insisted that all of his charges... Um, learn a musical instrument uh, and in most cases that meant for, for, for most kids a uh, um, recorder or um, violin uh, but in my case he, um, he, was, he knew I was interested in drumming so he taught me how to read uh, percussion uh, both for military drumming and for rock drumming or you know whatever you know, drum kit drumming if you like so I was able to read you know percussion off Steve thanks to thanks to George and uh, and at some level probably subliminally he influenced what was was then even at a very young age probably some some um, emerging sense of class politics I think but the debut wasn't very good was it say again your debut Oh, right. No, no, that was a complete disaster. Um, uh, we, we had to do this schools schools thing uh, in Belf Belfast schools thing, and they brought a lot of kids together from different schools, and everybody's parents got dressed up for the night and blah, blah, blah. And everybody went to, I can't quite remember where the venue was, but it was somewhere in downtown Belfast. And there was like 40 kids on the stage and, uh, you know, walls of kids standing ready to go with their recorders, you know. And me and this other guy were out front. We were the two drummers and we had these tiny, small little drums on, on tripod stands. And he, I remember the lights were like, I think the converted kind of um, metal biscuit tins with light bulbs in them or something. So the heat you know, was kind of really oppressive. I was upset. I was only about 11 years of age or something at that stage. And the song that we were going to play was, uh, to get us kicked off, was When the Saints Go Marching In. Now, you, you can't go very far wrong with them, the Saints, because it's literally when the Saints Go Marching In, did, 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 you know, uh, on the drum. And uh, anyway, long story short, uh, basically when the song started, the first time I hit the drum, it kind of lurched on, on the stand violently uh, and then the next time this came around to hit the drums I hit it again it lurched again and I could see that the things holding the drum on the on the stand were beginning to give way so I basically I realized very very quickly that I had I had two choices 
One was I could continue to play in front of all these people with my friend drummer beside me. And eventually what was going to happen was the drummer's going to fall off the stand and roll across the stage. And I'm going to be standing there with my drumsticks. So I could do that or I could just stop and stand there like an idiot, uh, which is what I did. Uh, and so people are immediately George is looking at me like what, what's the story you know why have you stopped playing the other drummer he starts to play harder you know to make up for it and uh, you know it was it was deeply deeply uh, publicly embarrassing at a very early age and as I say in the book um, which is a, a, a little bit of literary license but I said I, at that moment I resolved never to allow anybody to beat the drum for me again you know and it's interesting, George obviously gave you that um, education in music and class politics, even though you were quite young. And for me, that's where some of the frictions start to emerge in your life, because obviously the drumming, you become a side drummer in the Pride of Ardoin, but that then leads to sort of frictions in your own thinking about loyalism, class and identity. Can you talk a wee bit about that? And I'd also think maybe Sam could come in on that as well, because, you know, Sam, obviously in Shrapnel, he would talk a lot about being a socialist loyalist or a loyalist socialist. So for a lot of people, that's a contradiction in terms, but maybe we could um, talk about that briefly. Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I, you know, make no bones about it. I mean, I've, I've always, um, my politics has always been class-based. And so that not unsurprisingly then um, engaged me in a very um, powerful way uh, in terms of challenging sectarianism, because, you know, it's, it naturally follows. You can't be, in my opinion, anyway, you can't be a socialist. You can't have left-wing politics and be sectarian. Uh, so, or you shouldn't do. So, um, yeah, I, I I, had felt that, um, as I think a, a lot of people probably do, um, you know, unionism uh, is a very broad-based church. It's often presented as as monolithic, of course, and, and you know, simply orange and green and so on. But in, in reality... Um, it's it, you know there are many many people with varying degrees of of how they interpret their their unionism if you like and people often say unionism with a small u and this kind of thing. Yeah, we we, we talked earlier about the boys' model going to the same school and we talked about certain teachers and their impact on our political thinking, and and we take it from there. We both end up in shorts, yeah. uh, and we both have interactions with the trade unions there. So in the background, that is forming, and you take with that the presence of the Northern Ireland Labour Party on the Shankle, you take with that the social deprivation of the area. And and that forms our thinking. I mean, you quote in the book that the political left was uneasy with socialist loyalism. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. yeah, and and through Long Cash and through the likes of Gusty Spence and, and those guys who came behind, Davy Irvine, Billy Hutchinson, that left of centre sort of socialist loyalist politic comes to the fore. Yeah. Um, but I don't... <laughs> You talk about the broad church, yeah. But then you you have also witnessed the broad church and what we'll call the other side of the fence, and how suddenly you became aware that not all on the Republican Nationalist Catholic side of the fence were poor. You have right. a personal experience there. Do you want to talk about that? Well, I could read you something from the book about that if you if that's maybe timely to do so. Um, I yeah, I mean in the context of of. Um, an awakening. I mean, just to say, actually, in this context, in case I forget to say it, um, you know, just to actually bang the drum again, uh, so to speak. Um, 
you know, I I felt for a long time that the Northern, uh, that the British Labour Party should put up candidates in Northern Ireland, and I think it's it's tragic that they don't. It's it's remained tragic for a long time. I mean, to suggest that uh, as they do that the sister party, the SDLP, is a is a is a sort of an option, realistic option for loyalists, for example, loyalist socialists, shall we say, yeah. to vote for is clearly not you know um, defensible. Uh, and if if they stood a main what we'll call a mainland party, you probably nullify the sectarian tinges of the orange and green voting. You, you'd give people well, a place exactly to go right. to that was left of centre and and have the ability then to vote on non-sectarian lines. Yeah, I mean that's that's absolutely right. I mean that's something that has been that the Protestant working class have been deprived of, you know. Um, and you see, I mean, take my my situation. I mean, I'm not a monarchist, you know. Uh, I never have been, and um, and I feel uncomfortable with certain triumphalist aspects of of Protestant culture and Protestant working class culture. Um, all that being said, I will fight to the death to say that there are many, many positive uh, and um, aspects to to Protestant uh, culture that that should be celebrated. And uh, you know, and and the kind of negative stereotyping and caricatures that often accompany. Um, you know, sort of easy simplifications about that community does nothing except put the situation back, you know, uh, as I've always felt very, very, very strongly about that. And that's been something that has has underpinned, I mean, the band as well in terms of the songs and so on. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that after you, you do the reading. Sure, let me, find, uh, let me find the place. I should put my glasses on, really, shouldn't I? Um, and um, talk, talk amongst ourselves there, lads. Thanks. Um, yeah, basically, I'm. I'm. What I'd like to read uh, is, if I can find it, uh, boom, boom, boom. and I folded the page over and everything. Would you believe that? Uh, yeah, folks, just um, yeah, here we go. Notice a few QR codes up there just before Paul reads. Obviously, this one leads you to the book. Um, you can buy it in the atrium as well, but if you want to buy it online from Manchester University Press, you can scan the QR code. There's another one that should come up, which will bring you to Shrapnel and Tortoise Shack. So please support them if you can. Okay. Um, so what I'm basically, what, what I'm trying to reflect here in this chapter uh, is a kind of a coming of age politically in regards to um, the kind of things that I've been taking for granted up to this point and how, um, you know, uh, certain things, uh, you know, sort of the shit fell from my eyes and I was suddenly sort of, uh, I had this epiphany uh, that maybe all wasn't what it was supposed to be. Um, and uh, yeah, it also brings in uh, something that I'm quite proud of, actually, in terms of the band's cross-community uh, mission. Uh, this is back in now the late 70s, of course, when when it was very, very difficult and challenging to um, to uh, uh for young men to go across the the religious and political divide to to entertain the community from the other side. So if you bear with me, I'll just I'll just go through this. Among some of my teenage peers, I became known by several derisive names that would follow me into adulthood. It wasn't unusual in these circles, and it would be unwise uh, to read too much into it. Jap, I've already mentioned, it was mostly a schoolyard taunt, apparently encouraged by the shape of my eyes. Later I got called commie, more often than not as a, as a pejorative, but it was one that I wore with honour. It stuck simply because I saw the principle of redistribution of wealth and the inevitability of resource exhaustion due to insatiable capitalism as axiomatic, and as a mouthy adolescent ideologue, I spread the word with an evangelical zeal to anyone who would listen, although perhaps not in those terms. However, the intended slur, Fenian lover, 
also ascribed to me, seemed to be in an altogether different category. It had resonances with that other crass insult born in the southern states of America and aimed at interracial relationships. Perhaps it had something to do with my propensity for meeting and falling in love with girls from across the religious divide. During the 12th of July celebrations in Belfast, when the town was almost exclusively full of partying uber prods, I would somehow manage to meet and leave with the only Catholic girl amongst the red, white and blue throng. It wasn't necessarily by design, but as these incidents increased, there was some merit in calling it a definite trend. That tortured romantic tendency so popular amongst a certain type of young man perfectly fed into the forbidden love of mixed relationships in the war zone. Montagues and Capulets predestined for tragedy. I was a sucker for all of that. One such doomed affair involved a gentle and generous soul called Jacqueline, a trainee dental hygienist at the Royal Hospital uh, in Belfast. It was the first serious relationship for both of us, and my memory of it now is coloured by her trust and generosity of affection, ultimately thwarted by my own selfishness, petulance, and penchant for drama. However, the challenges and differences I obsessed over were less to do with barbed wire love and more about class war. Jacqueline came from an upper-middle-class family who lived in a large detached house in the affluent suburb of Bangor, West County Down. Her brother was a trainee architect at Queen's, and her father was captain of the local golf club. So the impediments to our harmonious union had little to do with holy icons, transubstantiation, or what religion our kids might be brought up in. The real stumbling block was my raw sense of inadequacy regarding our difference in social status. All my life I'd accepted the civil rights mantra that Catholics in Northern Ireland were second-class citizens, deprived and excluded from basic freedoms and opportunities. Yet here was a Catholic family, one of several I would subsequently meet, that endured a superior standard of living to me and my family and friends in every aspect of their lives. It was confusing to say the least, and did not fit the narrative I had been spun, the lie perpetuated by big house unionism when hoodwinking the proles with assurances of Protestant exceptionalism. It seemed that the words of UVF icon Gusty Spence had never rung so true. We may have got a slum quicker than a Catholic, but it was still a slum. Clearly there were Protestants and Catholics and affluent ones, or sorry, clearly there were poor Protestants and Catholics and affluent ones as well. This we are the people malarkey evidently wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Either way, put the two together, social and religious injustice, and it gives some insight into the ideology that underpinned Rufrek's philosophy and the politics of the songs and the band. And the years, as the years passed, this perspective developed into a more nuanced mission to contest social inequality and challenge the evil of sectarianism. It was perhaps not surprising then that I identified at an early stage the fundamental necessity for integrated education at nursery, primary and secondary level in Northern Ireland and supported and promoted initiatives to further that goal. It wasn't long before I was in contact with Joanne McKenna, then Development Officer for All Children Together, inquiring about the band, how the band might provide support to this fledgling enterprise. Some parents had made tentative inroads, despite fierce opposition from churches, politicians and segregated schools, by establishing a Lagan Integrated College, the first integrated school of its kind in Northern Ireland. Rufrex offered its support in whatever way we deemed appropriate. In practical terms, this meant fundraisers and promoting the school in newspapers, radio, and through any media opportunity that presented itself. This in turn led to us become, uh, to become involved in other ventures dedicated to furthering anti-sectarian work. Later, perhaps most notably, we collaborated with the Dublin-based activist group behind the Peace Train movement and later New Consensus. 
While this espousing of good causes may seem like some bourgeois anodyne exercise in salving our conscience uh, from a safe distance, let me assure you nothing could be further from the truth. For Rufrex, it meant walking the walk as well. Martin Lynch is an internationally respected playwright, but it was his brother Seamus who I most looked up to. From North Belfast, Seamus became a Republican activist around the start of the Troubles and sided with the official wing of of Sinn Féin in the split of 1970. He was a strong supporter of the official IRA ceasefire in 1972 and the official Sinn Féin's vocal socialism. As a result, he became active in the Republican clubs movement. Somehow Seamus and Martin, already active in community arts, had heard of the work and the message that Rufrex had been promoting and contacted me with an interesting, if daunting, proposition. Come and play for the kids of the fiercely niceness Turf Lodge housing estate in West Belfast with the promise that our pint glasses would never run dry. Turf Lodge lies in the shadow of Belfast Black Mountain and for most uh, of its history it's been a place of poverty and social unrest. The estate was originally built to house people from the overcrowded terraced housing of the Lower Falls Road. With no shops, schools, public transport or roads infrastructure, life for the population of largely young families with children was challenging to say the least. Poorly constructed flats exacerbated the problem. To further aggravate an already set of dire circumstances, the impact of the troubles on the area was immediate and calamitous. It was something of a minor miracle then, and to the enduring credit of the Lynch brothers and other activists uh, like them, that an unbreakable sense of community, identity and spirit prevailed there. When I discussed the proposition of the gig with the others, there was a considerable amount of trepidation. Sectarian murders were happening daily, committed by young working-class men on young working-class men. For the ban from the Shankill Road to venture into an area to perform was unheard of at the time. The risks were just too great. But Martin had given us a guarantee of safe passage, and there was that offer of unlimited free drink. So after some discussion, we agreed that, as this kind of gig was the band's core mission, we would play. A rusty tan-coloured Nissan car with some heavy-looking older men in it met our hire van on the fringes of the estate. We usually transported our own gear to gigs by any means possible, sometimes by black cab, and that was out of the, but that was out of the question here. When the community centre came into view, we were both reassured and unnerved all at once. It looked exactly the same as the facilities in our area. A concrete block of a building, pebble-diced and set on a sea of tarmac, sprinkled with broken glass, bottle tops and crushed cigarette boxes. The kind of place, we thought, from which bad men ventured abroad to spread carnage and waste lives. Around this time, we were working with a film crew from the BBC Northern, from BBC Northern Ireland on Cross the Line, a documentary about the band that featured live performances in the now notorious Tyndale Community Centre. Unbeknown to us, the infamous Shankle Butchers gang were operating out of there at the time, a truly distressing revelation when we learned of it later. Here in Turf Lodge was a similar venue, but one associated with the IRA, albeit the official IRA stickies. Martin met us at the door, and his, his effusive welcome and generosity helped steady our nerves somewhat. The interior, too, bore a striking resemblance to Loyalist clubs we had been in, the key difference being the photographs and flags on the wall, the starry plough, James Connolly, Che Guevara. The locals, seemed, uh, the locals soon began to arrive and file in. They were predominantly men of our own age or younger, and they dressed and carried themselves much like us. They danced wildly to the upbeat uh, frenetic songs and bled into the shadows on the slower numbers, just as the kids in the Loyalist estates had done. They faced the same problems daily and sought refuge and escape in the same ways. If ever there was an affirmation of cross-communal affinity, it was here. 
The gig culminated with much backslapping and handshaking. Pints were coughed and jokes told. It was a moment of epiphany for everyone there. Most of the kids would never venture out to the pound or the harp. It just wasn't their scene. They were Spider-Men, like us. If they were to hear the message, it had to be taken to them. For a brief window in time, there was no difference between prods and tags or spides and punks. It was the first of many cross-community ventures that Rufrex was to play around the province, but it was Turf Lodge that steeled our resolve not to, delete, uh, not to dilute or shy away from our mission to challenge the scourge of sectarianism. Paul, that gets a round of applause, and rightfully so. But that kind of attitude then led to exclusion within the punk scene for you guys. Um, yes, um, I, I would. Yeah, that might be a little misleading in a sense, Sam. I mean, we weren't penalised um, by the punk scene in Belfast for doing cross community gigs. That's that's that is not the case. I think we fell foul of what became the. Um, the monetized narrative that is now good vibrations. Um, basically because we were massive pains in the arse, we wouldn't, um, we looked at good vibrations as little more than a youth club, except it didn't have orange cordial and ping pong. It had punk rock and, and leather motorcycle jackets. Um, uh, we were very outspoken about that at the time. We were, we were just, we completely bought into the, the whole ideology of punk. We were, unreconverted in that regard we were ideologues and we believe that um in the famous groucho marx uh maxim that i wouldn't want to be- belong to a club that would have you um so we fell foul of 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 the scene to some extent i think the other bands uh, sort of tolerated us although to my great pleasure they never missed a refrex gig they were always in the front row uh, maybe it was just to see what we were up to, uh, but I like to believe we 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 did earn a little respect from them. But we didn't play the game. We didn't want to be part of it. And despite getting our first single out on Good Vibrations, something which I'm eternally grateful to Terry Hooley for, despite our other differences that we may have. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it was it was it was basically those were the reasons that we fell further the punk scene in Belfast. It was a very different story in the second coming of the band when we went to London. Uh, you know, we were we were outside the peel there for different reasons, uh, and that had to do with with basically being loyalists, and we're coming from a loyalist working class community in, in London music scene. But in that first version of, of Refrax, there there was an incident in in the Heart Bar, yeah. with the uh, the fight in thirty sixth, uh, and the, the was the lyrics Ulster Ulster, Ulster boy from Sham yeah, sixty nine. It was a Sham sixty nine song actually, and. I, yeah, I mean, people often, you know, the narrative has become this thing about punk rock solved the troubles. And, you know, it's just a little kind of um, rose-coloured optics for me, because uh, I was there, uh, you know. I think it's maybe up to say up to say at this time that I make a strong distinction uh, now and in the book between uh, non, being non-sectarian and being anti-sectarian. I believe Good Vibrations was a non-sectarian enterprise, and... So they created a bubble by which young Catholics and Protestants could come together, a very, very valuable and necessary thing to do, and they're to be praised for that. But, you know, the story that's told by the Hollywood movie and the the the, 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 the Broadway stage show uh, really, you know, sort of um, does tend to um, take the, the, the path of least resistance as far as the truth is concerned. Um, my belief is that being anti-sectarian meant being proactive, 
and challenging sectarianism in the way that I've just described by the gig that we did, for example, in Turf Lodge. Uh, so this particular incident that you that you mentioned and why it went slightly off on a pivot there, Sam, was because the harp by by association then was often thought to be, uh, you know, sort of a safe haven because it became the sort of centre for, for punk rockers in Belfast. In actual fact, the, the harp was a very tough bar. Uh, by day, you know, uh, before the punk kind of, um, you know, before punks occupied it, so to speak, um, it was, you know, it was um, a, a watering hole for for sailors and for, you know, manual workers. Um, the politics of the place, if you could put a finger on it, was probably official IRA, I would say. Um, during the day, I can remember this vividly, they used to fly... Um, they used to fly strippers over from Manchester. Uh, so if you were setting up your equipment ready to go on that night, you might, might often find a stripper doing a show, uh, you know, sort of gyrating on this, <laughs> i never forget it, this heart-shaped chair with a, you know, with a, with a mauve cushion on it with a, with a very suspicious stain. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that was the backdrop of what was going on, you know, in the harp. It was a tough place and it was frequented by tough people. Um, Punk, the punks were pretty much indulged, and and uh, that worked out for everybody. Fortunately, in most cases, but I do recount. Uh, Sam is referring to a situation um, where I do recount in the book where we had played a set and we had got to our encore, and we decided that we would play this song by Sham Sixty Nine. Now we we're not we weren't particularly Sham Sixty Nine fans, uh, but the song was called Ulster Boy. I don't know if anybody has ever heard it. But it has a chorus of just just an Ulster, Ulster at the end. And I'd be lying to say we weren't being slightly mischievous, uh, you know, in, in covering this. And um, at this point, uh, as we did this song, and as, as Clarky punched the air, Ulster, Ulster, um, I could see a bit of a conflab going on at the back of the, <laughs> at the back of the hall. And um, ultimately, so when we finished the song, uh, we were getting ready to do another one, this middle-aged guy in a suit pushed his way to the front of the crowd through the punks got to the stage uh and basically um opened his jacket and there was a revolver tucked into his waistband and he said pay another note and you're getting fucking shot uh so that was uh, uh necessitated a quick exit uh which was fine for the others because they were playing with the the support band's uh, backline, uh, you know, so all that stuff, all they had to do was put their guitars in their cases and walk, but I always had my own drum kit, so I'm trying to carry a bass drum and a floor tom and cymbals and a case, you know, uh, to get to get out of there. Uh, anyway, you know, I wouldn't want to make too much of that, but again, it's just necessary to say that was the real scene, you know? Those things could happen, and, and you know, to, to suggest anything different is actually just to to not to do the scene, uh, you know, a proper so it's to do this a disservice because this kind of rose coloured optic kind of idealism that people now spin for the Belfast punk scene of the late seventies and everything I don't think it it helps. Yeah, well, I think we've talked about this before. I saw the film in Nottingham, of all places, it was over for the football. I was in an independent cinema, saw Good Vibrations was on, just been released that weekend, went to see it. And it was the only time I've ever been at a film where people have stood up and clapped at the end. And that was really weird because we'd obviously had all those conversations about the Good Vibrations heart bar scene. And it struck me, you know, even 
when was that, 14 years ago when the film came out, something like that. I thought at that stage, Paul has to write his book. So, you know, is was the impetus to write the book to counterbalance that narrative? Well, you see, I, I feel quite strongly about this. And the reason I feel quite strongly about this is because I think it feeds into the bigger question of legacy. And I think it feeds, in, it feeds into the question of how, how you know, sort of we, we, we handle the past. And I think, you know, as I've suggested, it does a disservice, um, uh, you know, to, 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 to dealing with the past and coming to terms with it. I, I think sugarcoating things in this way um, really, really doesn't help. And I think people have, who were there have a responsibility to try and protect that narrative to some extent and, and to say, you know, these things happened. Um, it wasn't done. Now, equally, I know that there's a very powerful and influential lobby, whether it be commercial interests, whether it be Tory politicians, whether it be former terrorists who are now politicians, who want to move the thing on and let's, you know, let's put it behind us, let's draw a line under it. Now, you can see the sense in that. I, I mean, you can see the appeal in that. Of course you can. Nobody wants to be continually looking to the past, but there must be a balance in being able to... F- to face up to the reality of what happened without sugarcoating it and, and, and sort of saying, right, that's all been dealt with, let's move on. Um, you know, and if you want to know anything about it, go and see the Good Vibrations movie. Is, is that why Roof Rex ran against the grain at the time, I suppose? The first time I heard Roof Rex was maybe 2000 and, no, 1998-99. It was Mike Edgar played you guys on Across the Line. And immediately, for me, it was sort of like, at that time, there was like therapy and ash. And for me, I was a therapy fan. Ash was more like what the undertones were. And to me, I married therapy and Rufrex up in my mind. Was it because Rufrex were singing about what was actually happening in Northern Ireland at the time? They weren't trying to escape from the reality. And people like an escape from reality. They don't want to hear the home truths. And even back then, that was problematic. And probably subsequently, with the reinvention of history, it's even more troubling for people who want to sort of nurture that revisionist history. Well, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, I think Northern Ireland, uh, you know, has, what's going to say, been at a crossroads. When hasn't it been at a crossroads? Uh, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, there is a fight for hearts and minds in, in this issue. You know, I mean, we, you know, we all know about the, the, the legislation in Westminster. It's, I mean, it's coming in, it's coming on board pretty soon, isn't it? We all know that almost uniformly across, as far as I can gather, across the religious divide, people, you know, on the ground, ordinary working class people and so on are against it. Um, but nobody seems to be listening. And as I say, you know, um, I mean, I don't want it to feel to sound trite that I'm linking that into to to how the music scene in Belfast was presented at the time. But I just I just feel it's another example of it. Yeah, it's it's what Gareth would allude to is disnification of of the history here. It's rewriting it and making it um, a fairy tale of of nightmare proportions that we tell the young people. I mean, Tony can attest to this. I've spoken many times on Legacy, and it's something that we should have dealt with in '98, but we trundled on without it, and now we can't dealing with it, we can't seem to get there and it always comes up and it always hinders the progress. There's people in this room who will know that progress is extremely slow and half the time we make two steps forward and six steps yeah. back. Yeah. Um, so I, I can see why you're you're pulling that music scene into it because it's just another way of telling that story, how yeah. we've taken a very bloody past and a very yeah. troubled past and we've tried to put a nice new spin on it. But you see, uh, the flip side of that is, it's, you know, the case against is so compelling. I mean, there's probably people in the room here who weren't born in the Troubles or weren't, you know, and so on. And you can understand when young people say, look, I really don't want to, you know, um, be be 
defined in that way or whatever. I, could, yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for that, you know, to some extent, but there must be some kind of middle ground. There must be some compromise that can be reached, you know, rather than, than what's been suggested at the moment. Um, but as I say, there's a compelling case from commerce, from, you know, everybody, con- we're constantly being told what a great place this could be and blah, 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 if we could just move on. Well, there's a lot of people still alive who have great difficulty moving on because they've been hurt and touched in very real ways, you know. Well, just to uh, take it a bit more lighthearted, I suppose, um, we've talked about intolerance. On shrapnel? On shrapnel, yeah. That's one of the things we always get pilloried for, making it too too intense. But that's that's the nature of this place. But we can always have a laugh. Um, <laughs> misery loves company. Um, so you've talked, obviously, you know, you might want to read another bit from the book. Um, in the book, you talk about a lot of the people, particularly in the second half of the book, people you met through your uh, second incarnation of Rufrex yeah. when you know he made it quite big for a while yeah um and there was one famous incident where you met somebody who'd already i think in, before that um famous incident and he'd, he'd already put his foot in it um and yeah i mean and this is inevitably i mean i don't i don't want to sensationalize this in any regard but it's the bit that sort of sticks out because you know i almost feel apologetic about it because when when you tell somebody that their hero has a feet feet of clay they often feel they don't like it and they they often also take it out on you you know i mean it's a difficult place one of the things i found in writing this book is it's it's very very difficult to um it's a very lonely place to um to say the emperor has the for the person who says the emperor has no clothes you know or the ghost at the feast because i've i've rattled a lot of cages with this book uh, and I, I was conscious of it at the time, but I, I pressed ahead and did it anyway. Now, one of the, one of the incidents in, in particular is what Gareth refers to. Um, and it involves, uh, a time when we were on tour with the Pokes. Uh, this was in our second coming, so to speak, when we get signed up by Stiff Records. So if you bear with me, I'll just, I'll just find it and, and go from there. Just remember, books are available out in the foyer, and there's tea and coffee as well. Yeah, yeah and we'll be going to Q and A at the end as well. So, if you've any burning questions for um, Paul, not for me and Sam, have a think about them now. Okay, sorry about that. This chapter, this chapter is called "Shane McGann Smile," which subsequently was the title of a song uh, I wrote for my latter band my current band sacred heart upon tempe um so if you if you're interested in it you can google it uh and it'll come up uh somewhere anyway and you're appearing at the imagine festival in march oh yeah at the oes yeah. center yeah uh won't be doing shane mcgowan smile though i doubt but anyway uh okay when i first met shane mcgowan there was little evidence of the individual who would become the beloved icon of irish culture we know today lauded for his songwriting abilities and artistic contributions to the canon I always found him personable and self-effacing. While the other band members might gather in rowdy communion, when in his cup Shane liked nothing better than to find a quieter corner to settle in alone with his drink, and his intake was indeed prodigious. His reputation preceded him. No one could imbibe that much and still get up on stage to front the band, could they? But this he did, albeit sounding incomprehensible for most of the set, the raucous, pogoing crowd not minding one jot. So when friends, activist Ken McHugh and journalist Henry MacDonald invited me to appear with Shane on an RTE Saturday morning show, I was pleased to do so. It was identified as an opportunity to promote the peace-building work of New Consensus and talk about the anti-sectarian efforts of Rufrex. 
We arrived in RTE Studios around 8.30am for a 10.30am slot and were told that Shane was flying in on a chartered flight from Portugal where the band had been playing the night before. He arrived about 10.15, clearly the worst for wear, carrying open bottles of port and rum, one in each hand. He routinely swigged from both. When introduced, he seemed to remember me and offered a hug. His broad smile revealed a mouthful of blackened tombstones and dripping gums. Then he presented the two bottles and with a gesture invited me to join him. I had to ignore the saliva and slobbers to partake in a kind of liquid breakfast camaraderie and did so happily. It was another few months before we met again, this time backstage before our support slot to the Pogues in Portsmouth. We had witnessed hijinks aplenty on this short tour, both behind the scenes and during the gigs, but Portsmouth was a new low. Students, shore-leave sailors and locals beat the shite out of each other in spectacular fashion while the bands played on. Okay, by, the, by this time we seemed to have added a whole assembly of peripheral personnel to our payroll. Valerie Johnson's, uh, Jonty's former accountant girlfriend was now in a relationship with Ray, a work colleague from Dublin. This meant that a, success, a succession of friends from Dublin looking to gain a foothold in London were now kipping around our house in Olive Road. Some of them, some of them turned up on the guest list at our gigs. Others seemed, others seemed to have acquired random roadie jobs, carrying equipment willy-nilly from one side of the stage to the other. With increasing frequency, I found myself sitting at the bottom of my bed, checkbook in hand, while Jonty ushered in individuals to be paid. This is Enda. He helped set up the amps at the Brighton gig. He'll need 50 quid. The uneasy feeling that I, I was now a fully-fledged dupe for strays and waifs was hard to shake. There was also something crazy feeding into all this, something to do with Jonty's unresolved relationships with Valerie. Don't worry too much about that. If you read the book, you'll understand it. But signed checks I did. Giving away the band's money was one thing, but being put in the invidious position of paymaster was quite another. I hated it with a passion. With strangers, it was unpleasant enough, but with my fellow band members who regularly came to my room on a Wednesday afternoon for the same purpose, it was beyond appeal. This was definitely not what I signed up for. Meanwhile, back at the dressing room in Portsmouth, Phil Chevron pushed his way through the band members' entourage and bouncers to make sure his support act was doing okay. As we chatted, I could see the unmistakable figure of Elvis Costello join the post-gig melee. He looked over in our direction. Like many people, I always imagined Elvis to be the skinny nerd that he appeared to be in his early appearances with the attractions on TV, the suit, tie, and gawky glasses, suggestive of the perpetual loser. But the character who showed up that evening in Portsmouth was tall and bulked out. He was also loud and aggressive. As I talked with Phil, I heard Elvis say loudly to a few pogues and sycophants, Why is he talking to those orange bastards? I immediately darted a look in Clarkie's direction. Mercifully, Clarkie didn't, ha- didn't seem to have heard the comment. Then Elvis exaggeratedly adjusted his glasses, squinted towards us, and held his stir in our direction seemingly inviting even during a reproach from our side of the room. When he got none, he turned and melted into the Pogue's entourage and the mocking laughter that had greeted his remark. I thought Phil Chevron, who had clearly heard him, might challenge him there and then, but he simply squeezed my shoulder reassuringly and pushed me on th- and pushed on through the crowd. I know that recalling this incident is not something his many fans will find palatable. Nevertheless, now as then, I thought it a cheap and lazy way for someone in his position to curry easy favour and bolster his Irish rebel credentials. More damagingly, it showed a lack of understanding for what Rufrax were trying to achieve through our music and undermined our efforts to challenge the sectarian dichotomy of orange and green. 
Later, I learned that Costello had previously formed in these matters, this time regarding racist remarks. And at this point in the book, I, I back it up with a, with a quote from a magazine where Elvis, when he was in America and younger, had made some very questionable remarks about, about black people. Elvis himself later refers to the U.S. incident in his memoir, but that night in Portsmouth, he must surely have felt he was on sure footing when surrounded by fellow travellers. Nonetheless, it remains my belief that he indirectly disparaged two-thirds of the national flag of the country that he purported to love so much. And I think that reflects some of the other points you make in the book about the gatekeepers uh, around the, the music scene in London at that time and how the greening, as you called it, off off the scene was acceptable. At that time, the mid-80s, and to some extent now as well, I mean, you know, it was it was very cool to be Irish. Everybody wanted to be Irish. You know, everybody was 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 um, uh, identifying with their you know first or second or third generation Irishness, and we've you know you can, everybody you can think of, Daxies, Midnight Runners, um, the Gallagher Brothers, the Beatles, for God's sake, you know, I mean, everybody, you know, really um, felt comfortable and um, uh, happy to be associated with 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 Ireland. Nothing wrong with that, but at at that time, um, when there was massive anti Thatcher feeling. And anti-Thatcher feeling equated with at that time in London troops out the troops out movement and so on to some extent. Uh, then you know very often I had to to field um, you know sort of uh, um, cries of you know get the troops out and this and I would often say the same thing. If the troops um, were to be would be taken out of Northern Ireland, would you return with me and live there with my family and friends? Uh, you know, in the aftermath of of the British army going. And the fact is that. Um, uh, it was one thing to to you know to be Irish was one thing, but for many many people it meant being Catholic Irish. You know, I've always been very comfortable in my Irishness. Um, you know, I don't have a problem with it. I've never comfortably bought into the dichotomy of you know it has to be mutually exclusive British or Irish. I've always you know felt that you know you can be Welsh and British, Scottish and British, and Irish, albeit Northern Irish and British. So I'm quite comfortable in my Irishness. Um, and I didn't need, you know, someone to suggest that unless I had the right Catholic credentials to in some way kind of qualify or justify my Irishness, that then I didn't really count as being Irish. Yeah, I mean, David Irvine once said at the PUP conference that if the British Army left tomorrow, the British presence in Northern Ireland would still be there. It would be yeah. the likes of us as such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the greening of, of the music scene in London was was reflected with the the greening of what was happening in the US at the time. And, and you've written uh, The Wild Colonial Boy, and I'll read the last sort of verse. What with collection time and all, with charities, functions and balls, it really gives me such a thrill to kill from far away. And you're talking about the, the sort of, the money being raised at that point by Noriad. Now I'm going to give a bit of an anecdote here. It, it, I, as an 11 year old, was sent off to Cape Cod on one of these cross community programs. Um, and the family I stayed with were uh, the Torres family, and they were of Spanish descent. Knew nothing about Northern Ireland except for what they had seen. So they had picked us up one, one Saturday afternoon. We're going to a, a barbecue. Um, it's going to be hundreds of people there. It'll be great crack. So into the car we go. And on the way, they, they tell me that it's a fundraiser and they're going to raise money for people like me back home. It was a Noriad event. 
Uh, and in the next 15 minutes on our way to the barbecue, you had to give them a, a history lesson um, and exactly what Norad were doing at that point and how I seen what Norad was doing at that point. As an 11-year-old boy, it was quite harrowing for me to think that I was going to be in the presence of people who were banned Armalites. Yeah. Um, so while Colonial Boy was, was, was well acclaimed, I mean, can you talk me through a bit of where all that comes from? Yeah, um, I mean, I wrote Wild Colonial Boy. I had been working on it for a while, and it was really galvanised when when Martin Galvin, in fact, uh, was invited by Sinn Féin to Northern Ireland. Some people may remember this. Martin Galvin was a lawyer, American lawyer, and he was actually had an exclusion order uh, put on him, but Sinn Féin managed to get him in and paraded him around many events, you know. And he was centrally important to the Norwegian movement, who were was were raising money for for guns uh, and for armaments uh, and. And so when when that happened, I'd been working on the song anyway. So that kind of was the last kick up the arse I needed to finish the song. And the song then became synonymous with the band because it was I felt it was a good song, you know, and it, it, by any objective measure, irrespective of what it was about. I mean, I still thought it was a good song, uh, but I thought obviously lyrically as well, it, it pretty much summed up who we were and what we were talk, were doing. I wrote the lyric in in. Um, you know, it, through the through the eyes of an Irish American, um, I I borrowed that that kind of um, technique, or if you want to call it that. Um, Randy Newman had written a song. I don't know how this came onto my radar at the time, but Randy Newman had written a song called Rednecks, and he and he wrote the the lyric through you know the eyes of the redneck. So I wrote the lyric through the eyes of an Irish American, um, and so. But in doing so that actually courted disaster because it left me then open to massive misinterpretation uh, you know, or misunderstanding, um, sometimes deliberately uh, by people who didn't have the band's best interest at heart. Uh, because there's a line in it, for example, um, um, I know that if I get my chance that I can jig and reel and dance because in between the killing, that's what all us Aries do. Now, you can see how that could be mis misinterpreted and you can see how it's never going to be played on RTE. Uh, you know, so so that was another that was another disqualification to some extent, you know, for the band. But we felt the the backstory to that particular song is that the band were 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 sort of fa you know falling apart at that time. We'd all gone off and we're doing different things, and we said we would go out with a with a flourish. We would we would bring this last single out, our last hurrah. Um, it I, you know I put a picture of an armalite wrapped in brown paper and string and covered in stamps on the cover I put the lyric on the back uh, and I said right nobody's going to touch this with two barge poles tied together so it's not going to work commercially it's not going to work uh, um, artistically I'll be amazed if it gets played on the radio and we thought well at least it's you know we've said what we wanted to say and, and we're happy with that but cut a long story short it came out on a small independent label and amazingly um you know the usual suspects give it some some oxygen. Uh, John Peel um, and um, Gavin Martin, late Gavin Martin at the time for the NME and so on. But I got this phone call one day, and this guy who ran this small independent label in in London was saying, "Are you listening to the radio?" I said, "No, no, turn the radio on, turn the radio on." So I turned the radio on, and there was this guy called Simon Bates, who um, had a daytime housewife's choice slot on daytime radio one and he had this weird thing that he played every day called our tune and basically what it was was he 
Oh, I won't bore you with the whole thing, but it was basically people used to send in requests for songs and they used to send their backstories. And their backstories were always these incredibly sad and tragic things of people early, you know, premature death and things. And then he would play the song, right? So this, so Simon Bates, for some reason, is best known to himself as playing Wild Colonial Boy. Um, now, this is, this is like, you know, this is what Middle England listens to, you know. I mean, it's, it's, this is what the, whole, the, shower, the showers listen to. And we're thinking to ourselves, have they, is this a wind-up? I mean, you know, have they not read the lyrics? Have they not looked at the cover? But amazingly, we were getting suddenly on heavy rotation on daytime Radio 1, and literally everything changed from there. Um, in in the sense that you know, um, the big hitters set up and 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 started to listen. Also, we had, uh, you know, we had quite a reputation at the time we, that we put together for our live act, and that had kind of gone before us as well to some extent. And um, all of a sudden, people wanted us to come to London, and people wanted to sign the band. So, Wild Colonial Boy, um, as a as a kind of a you know, as something that that I felt was important to say, suddenly also became you know the catalyst to the most successful period in the band's history. And the tragic backstory was your uncle Andy moustache at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, one of the things I said, and that you know, I was I was I was bigging up how kind of um, idealistic we were about punk and saying punk punk bands should only be four people, and and we're not listening to the Stranglers because their keyboard player has a moustache. You know, on the keyboard, by the way, you know, that, that didn't work for Pong either, as far as I was concerned. But then, as somebody rightly pointed out, didn't you have a moustache as well, Paul? Yes, actually, I did, yeah. Well, I think we'll round it up there. Um, we'll throw it open to questions now. Um, if anyone has um, questions for Paul, I think uh, there's a couple of roving mics. So, if anyone wants to put their hand up. Don't be shy. <laughs> What's your reaction, though, about the we, we, we were... Kind of, right? Stop boasting. Then. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> um, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, a few years later, you did the Jowls Reels. Yeah, but no, 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 no farce. Well, on well, on both of those, both of those gigs, um, I don't remember very fondly, and they were also, I mean, you know, that thing about being being talked out of retirement uh you know um is is absolutely true we should never we should never have done well the stiff the sorry the the spit one possibly because the empire gig that was a good gig and the book is a great book and um but for what it's worth and any musician will who's who's here will know this for some reason um uh, we were getting in the monitors on stage the playback was actually out of sync with what we were playing and it was thrown us badly at the time we tried to sort of suffer through it and then of course being the conspiracy theorists we are we all said ah oh, well they did that on purpose you know um the other gig i've no excuses for that we 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 um basically rightly said that we would do this i think it was a channel four program who were filming it and so we said to people oh come along i'm going to do this and um and then film crews being what they are you know you'd be halfway through a song and they say, right, stop, stop, can we just start the song again from this angle? And I hadn't really realized that that was going to happen. And we had all these people who came along like yourself to see a gig and it was far from a gig, you know? So apologies. I'll give you your money back later if you want. I was going to say no refunds, Paul. mid as well was another, yeah, it was a, a sorry, Abbas, I'm sorry you brought that up, actually. <laughs> yeah, where's the, where's the set? <laughs> I'm okay, fared off to go and see therapy that night, so I didn't even get to see any Rufrex music. Ways move. 
people to, to try to get these spirits to disappear and unite. And I can see. Um, well, in the context that my, my, um, my academic career, so to speak, was in the rebel county of Cork. So you can draw your own conclusions there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I, uh, have lived in the Republic now for hard to believe, uh, almost over 30 years. Oh yeah. The people's Republic of Cork. And, and yeah, and that's, that's one thing I found out very quickly, you know, initially I thought, you know, um, well, you know, I'm going to be mistrusted here and people are going to be very wary of me and so on. And then I started to speak to people from Dublin and, and go, and they said, nah, Cork people are like that with everybody, you know? Uh, so very cliqueish, you know, uh, and, but in all honesty, obviously I wouldn't have been there for 30 years if, if I hadn't have felt that, um, you know, I was accepted, uh, you know, in many respects, um, had a few run-ins that I'm not going to go into with with certain elements within my own department in University College Cork, who who I think were throwbacks to that kind of thing about um, yeah. Well, you know, I was I was I have to watch what I say here now. Um, uh, yeah, I've I've in that Ulster way, I was very outspoken and and you know called the spade a spade and all that stuff, and that really doesn't go down too well down there generally and down in Cork in particular. You have to, you know, you have to sort of watch, um, you have to watch direct kind of um, um, to the point kind of, especially where politics are concerned uh, and so on. So it's a good question, James. I mean, I, I, if I had to say, then I, I think the most uncomfortable uh, period was was that kind of feeling in the wilderness in the middle of, of uh, the music scene in London at that time, because, um, you know, it's it's a... I remember one particular um, um, article that was written by a guy called um, Bill Bill Martin was it Bill? Anyway, he he had done this very able guy. Unfortunately, he's passed away you now, and uh, he'd been at Hot Press for a long time, very well respected. And uh, I met him in London uh, to do this interview, and I was used by then of being treated to um, liquid lunches by journalists, and I was quite looking forward to that. Uh, he topped me for a tenner immediately, uh, and and then did the piece. And when I got the, the the Hot Press magazine, which as you know is based in the South Hot Press, um, they ran it with this headline: "We're the voice of loyalist extremism." That was and the one with the un- Uncle Andy moustache, wasn't it? The picture, very possibly. No, that no, that was in the New Statesman. Uh, it was in the New Statesman. They ran that. Paul Burgess is uh, Paul, Paul Burgess is is collapsing under the weight of his own imagery, loyalist imagery. I think was the the line there. Um, no, and that you know the the thing was that was very dangerous. I mean, I felt very uncomfortable. I mean, this troubles were still at their height at that stage, and how he would have now the piece itself. When you read the piece, you could see that that's not what he meant at all. Whether it was a sub editor who had just put that in as a sort of a as a, as a sort of uh, tagline or something, you know, I don't know. But to pick up a paper in the middle of the trouble, see a picture of yourself under the headline in the hot press, we are supposed to be the voice of loyalist extremism. I mean, it didn't help. But the, but know? then you sort of balanced that out by going into NME and saying that a 32 state federal state might work. I mean, you upset both sides. Of oh the no, I, I successfully pissed off everybody at the one time. Um, because I, I was starting to think along, and I've, I've actually written a chapter for that book, Condested Identities of Ulster Catholics, where I explore the idea of a 32-county federal Ireland, but with protections and, and you know, for dual nationality and so on. 
Um, it, I couldn't do it justice here. Obviously, you would have to read it, or, you know. But but in in saying those kind of things out loud in 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 the press, um, you know, again, you've got you've got to be careful because on the one hand. On the one hand, there was the the cliche that we were supposed to be loyalists and therefore were were you know the stereotypical caricature, and then on the other hand, you know, advocating for under certain circumstances for the possibilities of a United Ireland somewhere down the line brought you into direct conflict with within other people. So as I say, I successfully managed to piss off everybody. I'm an equal opportunity idiot, you know. Sorry, could you say it again? Yes, it's on. He's asked him any, or any interesting questions about the old, what became the other band members. Ah, okay. Sticky territory. Sticky territory. Plead the fifth. Plead the fifth. Um, uh, yes, I mean, uh, you know, musical differences. Um, and also the fact that, look, you know, I wrote as honest a book as I could. Uh, in some respects, it's maybe too honest in some places. Some people's noses have been put out of joint because of that, and I'm I'm genuinely sorry about that. Uh, but I, you know, I told the story as well as I could. Um, you know, as the late Queen Elizabeth famously said, recollections may differ. Um, but um, as I say, I I just I just think I. I mean, I'll, I'll I'll sum it up like this: When I wrote my first novel, my mother, God bless her, who's passed on now, uh, was a voracious reader of novels. And some of the stuff I had in the first novel, you would not want your mother to be reading. And I thought to myself, you know, am I going to take this out so as not to upset my mother? And then I thought, am I going to take this out so as not to upset? Are you mad? So if you want to be a writer, you know, you got to just grasp the nettle, I think, uh, in situations like this. And that's what I did with this book. And I know it's upset some people, but um, what can I say? Write your own book if you don't agree with it. I tried to keep it out of her fucking way, to be honest with you. And the next one was even worse, actually, you know. Can I just ask a quick one that's in, you keep referring to not wanting to forget about the legacy, about the the, the nuance. I'm always reminded, particularly in the cases of, say, Magnum Lotteries, Mother and Baby Homes. We have this, uh, one of the phrases, one of the survivors of the Mother and Baby Homes, Noel Brown, who's a, who's a brilliant activist, always says that the tactic is simple, delay, deny, and wait for me to die. <laughs> It seems to me that the wait for your generation to die. Then. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as I say, it's uncomfortable truths, as I say, you know, and and nobody will thank you for for you know holding the mirror up and and uh, you know, uh, unfortunately. But I think some of us, um, if you find yourself in that position, whether it be writing songs that you think people are going to listen to or writing books that you think people are going to read, then I mean, you know, in some respects, um, that's a great privilege, and I think you owe it to yourself and the people are going to read to, you know, to tell it as, as closely to the, to the way you believe it as, uh, you know, as it is. So. Hi guys. I think you'll agree. That was a fantastic show with Paul. If you want to help keep the mics on, uh, if you could subscribe and it's the price of a, a coffee, uh, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise Everything that you can give helps keep the shack on the road and in turn keep shrapnel turning. So thanks very much. Speak to you soon.